and welcome to your most obedient and humble servant. This is a women's history podcast where we feature 18th and early 19th century women's letters that don't get as much attention as we think they should. I'm your host, Catherine Garrett. First of all, thank you so much for your patience with the podcast while we were on hiatus. Uh, I had a baby in July, which as I'm sure you understand, cuts down on the amount of free time that I had for things like podcasts. So for those of you who stuck out the wait, you are absolutely the best. Thank you so much. As sort of a treat for everyone, I was able to bring in as a guest, Alexis Coe, the New York Times bestselling author of Alice and Freda Forever, A Murder in Memphis, and You Never Forget Your First, which is easily my favorite biography of George Washington. So Alexis, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm a devoted listener. I have just been overwhelmed by your support for the podcast. Every time that you tweet about it, we get this huge surge in listeners. It's just, it's overwhelming and it's wonderful. So thank you so much. Everyone loves 18th and 19th century letters by women. You knew this. <laughs> it's like, they just have to find it. Yeah. So you and I first met when you were working on your biography of Washington, but your first book, Alice and Freda Forever, is very different, different time period, different subject matter. So what inspired you to write about George Washington? I, well, Alice and Freda was actually the anomaly. I, in graduate school, I focused on citizenship and political history in the 20th century. And then I, um, after I left the New York Public Library, which I went to after grad school, I wrote Alice and Freda, and then I started going back on my course, which was political history. Mm. And I was at the time hosting a podcast for Audible called Presidents or People Too with Elliot Kalin, who used to be the head writer of The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. And I think now he writes for Mystery Science Theater. Oh. And we, we would do a president every episode. And I had a way of preparing for it, which was I would read four or five biographies or micro histories and feel like I was getting enough variety, a diversity of perspectives, and I would be able to sort of come out, plan an episode, figure out what needed to be told and feel like I was, you know, fairly confident about my understanding of the president. That didn't happen with Washington. It didn't. <laughs> it was really frustrating. And I felt like the more I read about him, the less interested I got and the less, because there was no variety. And it was frustrating to me. And just the way my first book, my second book and the book I'm writing now, that sort of needles at me. And then I can't stop thinking about it. And I just think, well, it's just gonna continue to be like that. And if I, if I don't somehow intervene, I'm complicit in this. I had been thinking these ideas about presidential history in general for some time and had been like quietly writing about it or not so quietly, you know, with like op-eds in the Times and such. And, and I felt like it was just, it was a great vehicle for a lot of the thoughts that I had. There's, there's no greater example of presidential history and, and sort of the, the beauty and the, and the issues it has than George Washington. He's the Washington Monument. He's large, he's impressive, he's powerful, but there's nothing there. There's nothing to grab onto. There's nothing to really describe. <laughs> and it's unfortunate because complexity isn't a liability and it's treated that way with Washington often. There's such defensiveness around the founders and particularly Washington. We want to believe that he was perfect so that we can be perfect. Exactly. You became pretty well known in historical circles and definitely in history Twitter for describing a certain type of male biographer of George Washington as the thigh men of dad history. Can you elaborate on that concept? I had never planned on using that. You know, when you're in grad school and 
and you you learn these terms for these schools of thought, you think, well, maybe one day I'll contribute to that, but probably not. This was not what I had in mind. <laughs> I had this in brackets for a really long time because I couldn't, I wanted to come up with something and it just wasn't coming to me. And so, you know, I have a dark sense of humor and all my second readers kept taking it out of brackets and capitalizing it. And my second readers were a really diverse group. It was, you know, my editor at Viking, um, my husband, who is a magazine editor, um, Bill at the Washington Papers, <laughs> he took it out of brackets. Like they all loved it. And the thing with this book is I really wanted it to appeal to such a diverse audience and to have people from different worlds really respond to it. I decided, I'd, you know, it was just going to, it was going to have to be, it stays with you, but it is, it is really effective. And so I have no regrets. If you haven't read the book, it's uh, she describes sort of the way that that male biographers write about Washington, and it's totally true. They describe him as this like really rugged, masculine, manly man, and a lot of them focus on his thighs. Like there's so many descriptions of Washington's muscular thighs in these really well-regarded biographies of Washington. It becomes a thing. <laughs> it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable as a reader. What's funny is there was this like small, a you know, very small group of people who couldn't believe this irreverence that I was showing. And, but they never read the book. So they would say things like, can you believe she thinks his body is irrelevant? And like <laughs> so much of the book is about how his body is incredibly relevant. And there's <laughs> even like a really long list of things that survived and to show um, what that taught him over time and how it played into the revolution. So it was, it was sort of funny, but they, they love his body. They really do. And I understand it was graceful. They can't use graceful. They need to, they need to use masculine terms, but Cherno was really, I mean, he, he talked about like the thighs, but then he, he, he didn't stop. What was it? The jaw muscles were rippling. Um, yeah. You know, this is a professional space. <laughs> I'm glad it stayed in the book. I, I think you hit a nerve uh, for people who read a lot of presidential biographies and particularly Washington biographies. And it was just very well put. Thank you. Did you enjoy doing historical research from 18th century sources? Did you have any challenges with that? Well, you know, my challenges because I emailed you about them <laughs> when I was researching. There are parts of early American research that are far easier than any other time period, any other president. Founders Online, the, the Rotunda, those are the most amazing gifts. And they also are a pretty heavy lift for every historian. A lot of work has been done with you, for you, and this does not exist with other presidents. So thank you very much. <laughs> there was a certain part of it that was really convenient in a way that I had never experienced with other projects, with, um, you know, the my first book, or if I would write like a magazine feature, you know, I would have to take these trips and I would cram everything in and eat weird meals for several weeks. And, you know, things that increasingly get hard, harder and harder to do as, as you get older. So that was great. You know, Washington, I knew a part of the inability to really get close to him was that he is sort of inaccessible and he was removed. And so I knew that was going to be a challenge. It was such a challenge. And, you know, sometimes you would read an exchange he would have because you can just go through everyone's exchanges on Founders Online. I mean, it even gives you their citations. 
your listeners know this, but it just still amazes me. I would read a response from anyone else and it would be so exciting. <laughs> but particularly, <laughs> particularly, you know, Elizabeth Willing Powell or something like, people did get a little bit of a rise out of him. And he's, uh, he's quite fun when he's younger, but he becomes more and more controlled and more self-conscious. And so that was challenging. That was certainly challenging, really seeing what was there while reconciling it with all the secondary sources and what they maintain to be true, because you can't question everything, but you have to question everything. It's there for the taking. I mean, the, the, the amount of things that you can still learn about Washington and learn about all these people if you just have a slightly different perspective. And just even verifying these old stories like about Mary Washington that just really did not check out at all. That was a revelation. And so I had those moments pretty early on. And I think that kept me going for a long time, but it was certainly, it was, he's a challenging writer. You would think, you know, there's been so many things written about George Washington. What new could there possibly be? But there are also so many documents and a lot of those early books that are like, everybody agrees that they're the standard histories of Washington were written in a different time when, I don't know, accuracy was less important than sort of patriotism. <laughs> he was due for a new biography and yours is so accessible. Like it was, it's a fun read for Washington. It's super accurate. I really enjoyed reading it. So highly recommend again. Thank you for being on the podcast. And now we can dive into a Martha Washington letter this week. We're going to be discussing Martha Washington's letter to Mercy Otis Warren of December 26th, 1780. I thought it made sense to do a Martha Washington letter, but what drew you to pick this specific letter? I think about this letter a lot, and I think about it paired with a letter to Fanny. But Martha tends to compartmentalize. You know, you're on the inside or you're not. And it's yes. very different. Um with family, she's informal, she's maternal, lots of unsolicited advice, a little scolding, a little pushy, a whole lot of anxiety. Um, she's frank, she's bossy, you know, she's sometimes cutting. They're not artful letters. She makes no apologies. And then when she's formal, she's formal. And she's aware that there are eyes on her and she tries to match the correspondent. We don't have a ton of letters between the Washingtons, but it seems like they had a good marriage. And she's always trying to show up for him, which we see here. And that wasn't very easy to do because whether he intended to or not, he keeps moving the goalposts. (laughs) It's not exactly what she was sold. And so I think this letter combines all the different Marthas, which we really don't know. We know even less about her. And then there's a thrill of Mercy Otis Warren, who she respects, uh, but also is very aware of. She's not BSing her. She's aware of that this letter is going to live on, that is going to live with someone who understands its importance now and in and, and longevity. And um, I don't think she's being very honest about Washington, but I think she's being very honest about herself here for all of those reasons. I love it. Because Martha can really write a very formal letter when she has to. And it comes back to when she was quite young, working with when she was just a widow writing to uh, businesses in England, mer- the merchants in England. She can be very businesslike and formal, or she can be writing to her niece and it's all one paragraph and just completely informal. So yes. And so this is an example of Martha sort of, as you say, she's writing something that she knows that the person reading it is very well educated and also um, the person reading it is a historian is this is something that's going to be 
reflect on her and the and her husband and so you can tell that's that's the way she's writing um so sort of for the context of what's going on specifically at this time uh december 1789 martha and george are in new york still the u.s capital but martha's only been there for about seven months she actually in the letter she describes what's going on in her life so i won't go too deep into that here but she is at this point still figuring out what the first lady role is going to be. There was a lot of debate about it because there's the Democratic Republicans who don't want the president to be anything like a monarch. And so when Martha's doing something like hosting levies, which was an important political event, they're getting criticized for that because it's too monarchical, but then also they need to do something socially. So she's doing her best managing what social life she's able to have. And George Washington at the moment is still trying to get the country to unite around the Constitution. Uh, not all of the states had approved of the Constitution yet at this point. Rhode Island was still holding out there. Uh, he was working on a proposal to Congress for a national militia because of Indian depredations, as he says on the border. So that's sort of politically what he's working on, which doesn't come up in the letter, but I just think it helps sort of set the, the scene for what's going on. And Mercy Otis Warren, if you aren't familiar with her, she uh, was one of the very few female political writers of the era. So during the American Revolution, she was getting published in newspapers and she was known as sort of a political thinker and figure. And she had had a sort of awkward correspondence with Martha Washington since the actual era of the revolution. Mercy Otis Warren is a great writer, but she's a great writer in that sort of 18th century, very verbose way, which Martha is not at all. Uh, and so you can see in their early correspondence, there's a little bit of Martha just not really knowing what to do with it. At the time of this letter, she's living in Milton, Massachusetts, and she was working on publishing a book of poetry, and she was working on an ongoing history of the American Revolution. So she had written a letter a month earlier trying to restart the correspondence that they had carried on during the American Revolution. And this is Martha's letter responding to that. Who who works on a book about the revolution and also a collection of poetry? That's mercy. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So I will go ahead and read the letter. Martha Washington to Mercy Otis Warren, New York, December 26th, 1789. My dear madam, your very friendly letter of the 27th of last month has afforded me much more satisfaction than all the formal compliments and empty ceremonies of mere etiquette could possibly have done. I am not apt to forget the feelings that have been inspired by my former society with good acquaintances, nor to be insensible to their expressions of gratitude to the President of the United States, for you know me well enough to do me the justice to believe that I am only fond of what comes from the heart." Under a conviction that the demonstrations of respect and affection which have been made to the president originate from that source, I cannot deny that I have taken some interest and pleasure in them. The difficulties which presented themselves to view upon his first entering upon the presidency seem thus to be in some measure surmounted. It is owing to this kindness of our numerous friends in all quarters that my new and unwished for situation is not indeed a burden to me. When I was much younger, I should probably have enjoyed the innocent gaieties of life as much as most of my age, but I had long since placed all the prospects of my future worldly happiness in the still enjoyments of the fireside at Mount Vernon. I little thought when the war was finished that any circumstances could possible have happened which would call the general into public life again. I had anticipated that from this moment we should have been left to grow old in solitude and tranquility together. That was, my dear madam, the first and dearest wish of my heart. But in that, I have been disappointed. 
I will not, however, contemplate with too much regret disappointments that were inevitable, though the general's feelings and my own were perfectly in unison with respect to our predilection for private life. Yet I cannot blame him for having acted according to his ideas of duty in obeying the voice of his country. The consciousness of having attended to do all the good in his power and the pleasure of finding his fellow citizens so well satisfied with the disinterestedness of his conduct will doubtless be some compensation for the great sacrifices which I know he has made. Indeed, in his journeys from Mount Vernon to this place, in his late tour through the eastern states, by every public and by every private information which has come to him, I am persuaded that he has experienced nothing to make him repent of his having acted from what he conceived to be alone a sense of indispensable duty. On the contrary, all his sensibility has been awakened in receiving such repeated and unequivocal proofs of sincere regards from all his countrymen. With respect to myself, I sometimes think the arrangement is not quite as it ought to have been, that I, who had much rather be at home, should occupy a place with which a great many younger and gayer women would be prodigiously pleased. As my grandchildren and domestic connections made up a great portion of the felicity which I looked for in this world, I shall hardly be able to find any substitute that would indemnify me for the loss of a part of such endearing society. I do not say this because I feel dissatisfied with my present situation. No, God forbid, for everybody and everything conspire to make me as contented as possible in it. Yet I have too much of the vanity of human affairs to expect felicity from the splendid scenes of public life. I am still determined to be cheerful and to be happy in whatever situation I may be. For I have also learned from experience that the greater part of our happiness or misery depends upon our dispositions and not upon our circumstances. We carry the seeds of the one or the other about with us in our minds wherever we go. I have two of my grandchildren with me who enjoy advantages in point of education and who, I trust by the goodness of providence, will continue to be a great blessing to me. My other two grandchildren are with their mother in Virginia. The president's health is quite reestablished by his late journey. Mine is much better than it used to be. I am sorry to hear that General Warren has been ill. I hope before this time that he may be entirely recovered. We should rejoice to see you both. To both, I wish the best of heaven's blessings and am, my dear madam, with esteem and regard, your friend and humble servant, M. Washington. I don't know if people can appreciate who are listening who have not spent a lot of time with the Washingtons. Martha is a hot mess here. She is all over the place. This is <laughs> this is really a lot for her, but but no one else would notice. And for anyone else, this would be a totally normal letter. Trying to get Martha to come from Mount Vernon to New York was a struggle. Washington Secretary Tobias Lear is trying to lure her to come up to New York by saying that there's really good seafood. Because <laughs> <laughs> they know she likes seafoods. They like tell her how good the lobsters are. <laughs> she was delaying. I mean, all the wives, you know, for a long time showed up a little bit later, but she was really, she was quite tardy. And her letters are, she's becoming, un, she's like unraveling in the, in the weeks leading up to it. Oh yeah. Washington wanted to be general. I think he decided he had to be president. And then he was like, well, if I must. But he also was really aware that it could go south, that he was in a pretty good situation. But I think he knew that he wasn't going to be left alone. I think at the end of the war, he would have said, absolutely not. Good luck. Everyone has to just steady the ship. You can't depend on me for everything. And then I think he was so inundated at home at Mount Vernon. It wasn't a peaceful existence. And he was so troubled by everything. So I think that was, I think that was true. He sort of had to warm up to it. And then he was like, fine, I'm doing this. 
Martha, I don't think that ever happened. I don't think she ever warmed up to the role. No. The time period between the revolution and the presidency where she says there's nothing of news of interest but politic which i don't concern myself about which i think she's she's actively like no i'm not going to read this i know they're trying to get you they're trying to drag you back into this but i will not even pay attention to it and of course she is sort of understanding what's going on i the part in this letter that strikes me reading aloud that i hadn't really noticed before she talks about his tour through the eastern states and so that's well studied you can find maps of where Washington went exactly. She's talking about how happy the people are with him. I think if this is like an example of why he loves her, he would be so happy with this letter. (laughs) And he was rarely happy. His standards were almost unreachable. I think he would have loved this. She's selling everything that he wants. There's this always this sentence I stumble over, a little bit about that in all quarters that my new and unwished for situation is not indeed a burden to me. You're sort of saying two things, (laughs) (laughs) which which one is it? Um, And then this really bums me out. When I was much younger, I should probably have enjoyed the innocent gaieties of life as much as most of my age, but I've long since passed the prospects. And she just wants to be at Mount Vernon. That's absolutely true. She's being completely honest. They tell bold face lies all the time, but this is, this is not. There's another letter to Fanny on October 22nd, and they're, they're in conversation with each other. The greater part of our happiness or misery depends upon our disposition and not upon our circumstances. So she says that, and then in this letter to her niece, she says, Mrs. Sims will give you a better account of the fashions than I can. I live a very dull life here and know nothing that passes in the town. I never go to any public place. Indeed, I am more like a state prisoner than anything else. There is certain bounds set for me and I must not depart from. And as I cannot do as I like, I am obstinate and stay at home a great deal. She's depressed. This is bed behavior. I think that she is a very sociable woman. As she says, like when I was younger and gayer, I would enjoy the society. And this was New York. There's theater, there's culture. But she, because she is sort of the new queen, essentially, she's the new first lady. She can't do these things without them having a deep meaning behind them. And that's not what she wants. She wants to be at home in Mount Vernon, hanging out with her grandchildren and telling people that they're going to get worms. (laughs) So, (laughs) yeah. When she talks about being a prisoner, it's it's so depressing when any woman from this time period says that because you already think of them as a prisoner. But at Mount Vernon, she could walk around. She had all her hobbies and paying a lot of attention, too much attention perhaps to her grandchildren before that, her children. She is a homebody and she's also Virginian. She partying in Richmond when the Washingtons were younger, which they did, is very different than mm. New York. She's, she doesn't like the North. <laughs> Philadelphia gets a little bit better for her. And she does think it's good for the children. But it's true, she doesn't like it. She doesn't like it. She feel, and she, it's so much pressure and everyone writes about her in a way. And this is a woman who's used to finery and she likes things and she likes looking good. I always say, don't be fooled by the bonnet. You know, she's quite fashionable. And mm-hmm. um, she also, that makes her seem like a sweet grandma. And this woman was not a sweet grandma much of the time. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, and so that's the thing is, is, you know, I've read terrible letters from her about enslaved people and friends of hers. You know, <laughs> When you're a biographer, you have to take them on all the days, not their best days, not their worst days. Although I think this was one of her worst. What's important to me is it really moves me and it makes me feel a lot of empathy for her. I, I think she, she really was sort of a, a state prisoner at this point. And I agree, she had been so looking forward to spoiling those grandchildren in Mount Vernon for her retirement and then to all of a sudden be thrown back into the fray of politics and being so much uh, uh, the subject of attention, public attention, um, was just really disappointing for her at this point. I think the vibe just wasn't there for her. It was too, there was too much energy going on. But I love just to show like how manic she is. She's like, she's going, the Washington's committed to roles. No one, no one fell back. You, you followed through. The next generation, that was the weak one. Ne'er do well pretty much across the board with the exception of Quincy. But what I love about this is it's so manic. She goes from, you know, everyone is so happy with him. Everyone just completely loves him. Most popular person. Everything is going great between the South and the North. No problems. And then all of a sudden she flips it. The next paragraph, with respect to myself, I sometimes think the arrangement is not quite as it ought to have been. She's so lonely. He's been away. He takes two tours. And, you know, she'd rather be at home and this younger and gayer woman. I think it was also, I do think she felt older there. Mm. I do think she felt a little bit tired and a little bit frumpy compared to what was going on in New York. Once she was married to George Washington as the general of the American Revolution and she went to join him and all of a sudden there's parades and things for her when she's arriving different places and people are giving her fashion advice. That's one of my favorite letters from her is where she says that they, uh, she's, she's like, you would have thought I was a very great somebody. (laughs) (laughs) She's used to being a Virginia lady, but she's not used to being quite the level of a somebody that she suddenly is. And to Martha Washington's credit, she doesn't like it. (laughs) Like she doesn't, in Mercy Otis Warren's letter to her before this, she's writing a letter from sort of a political perspective. And she's basically saying like, oh, we're so lucky to have you and George Washington because you're not going to be like a king. You're not going to have all of these faults and all of that. So Martha's partially playing into a role, but partially she's like, she doesn't want to be a queen. She doesn't want all this attention. She just, she just wants to be herself. And she's not a highly educated, fashionable woman of New York or Philadelphia, and she's feeling that a little bit. It's not just that she's not this young woman with all this energy. It's very different to be a general's wife than it is to be Lady Washington. Yes. And she's not enjoying it the way the other political wives do. She's not enjoying it like Abigail Adams. You know, this is not Mm -hmm. exciting for her. You know, she seems breathless in every letter. Um, Dolly Madison a different kind of, of engagement, but still really enjoys it. And, you know, then, of course, Elizabeth Will and Powell. But that's not her. She's not enjoying it. She really doesn't like politics, which is sad for her. <laughs> yeah, she didn't want to be a political woman. She didn't want to be an educated woman. She she really was very happy in sort of the traditional role that she was put into as much as anybody can be. We don't have to say, well, she she wrote history. She was, she held these salons. 
it's not my choice occupation, but that's what she prefers. She prefers managing a very large household. And also she can't do those things there. I think New York is intense at any point. It's really intense. There is a point in this letter that you read where she notes that she has two of the children, two of her grandchildren, and the other two are with her daughter-in-law. And it's just like so funny in a couple of respects. If Martha had it her way, all four would be there. She wants all the babies for herself. (laughs) If anyone related to her has a baby, she's like, give it to me. (laughs) If the Washingtons weren't so friendly with Jackie's widow, you'd think this would be an absolute nightmare for her. Like the woman who has a child, it's it's like the old trope in, in one of these like period piece movies or series that the woman who has a child out of wedlock with a rich guy and the and the mother comes and says like, here's the deal. I'll, I'll give him the finest things in life, but you can never see him again. And I'm going to tell him you don't want him. And he'll hate you. And that's it, except that they get along and she still comes around. Yeah, the new it's very much part of the family. I think the fact that she remarries and has another like 10 children and like an insane amount that's like a huge family, that is an interesting story because we've got sort of the two chosen custises that get to go to Philadelphia and be the little prince and princess of America for a little while. And then there's the two that are left behind with their 10 siblings in Virginia. Yeah. How bad would you feel if you were them? You didn't get to go be with the president. (laughs) And when when Eliza, who wrote that the episode, the two episodes I did on the on Eliza, when she goes to visit Martha, she's a little pill. (laughs) Like she she doesn't sort of take advantage of the society the way that Martha was anticipating her doing it. Um, So anyway, there's I was just also looking at another letter where Martha was writing to Eleanor, who's the, the the chosen one, the princess who got to live in Philadelphia, and she's writing about your lazy sister. That's the Martha <laughs> I know. Your lazy sister, who I partially rejected, <laughs> doesn't get to live this extraordinary life. How dare she? Yes. And meanwhile, Washi, I am excited. Uh, Cassie, you know, Cassandra Good is writing this yeah. book about the Custises, and I'm really excited for it because I think. most of the world doesn't understand Mm -hmm. this and I think to understand the Washingtons you really have to understand what children were to them you can dislike a lot about Washington he was a good dad yeah to these kids that yeah yeah (laughs) to a lot of difficult children and grandchildren (laughs) Martha he's so lucky that it worked out that way that they had a nice marriage because he really would have taken anyone who had a decent dowry. (laughs) You name it, 14, 16 year olds, doesn't matter. And sometimes he would get these letters and the fathers would be like, they don't want you. (laughs) They're not interested in you. And he'd be like, well, I'd like to come around again. I think maybe we could do it. You know, we could, we could dance. I could come through. It was pretty good kismet for him and Martha because she was, she had done the marrying for money thing. She didn't have to do it again. She, she was sitting on so much money. And then here's this one year younger than her, which I think is a big deal. And the fact that she calls him the old man when he's one year younger than her is cute. People, (laughs) I think people forget that people assume he's older than her, but no, she's, that's a joke she's making. But yeah, he, he turns up, uh, is interested in marrying her and it's like okay I, I could marry the 65 year old who already has a ton of kids and has a lot of money or I could marry this doesn't have quite as much money but tall apparently nice thighs super hot yeah <laughs> dude I think it was convenient for both of them this marriage and 
it would be an insane to say that money did not enter into it. But I do think that they're actually a very good match for each other. I think he was smitten. She was cute. She came with a lot. It wasn't just the money. She came with children. That was a good thing in early America. It wasn't a bad thing. And he liked them and they were young enough that he could really raise them. They clearly got along. I think if he wasn't in love with her at first, I think he did by the end. They made a very good team. And you can see it in something like this letter where she's like, she is holding down the fort. This is what George Washington at this point is trying to present himself as disinterested, as reluctant, as the perfect smaller Republican uh, president of a new country. And she is absolutely, she has his back in this letter. That's the way she's describing him to somebody who she knows is a political writer and who she knows is going to eventually be working on a book. And things aren't even bad yet. She has no idea. (laughs) Things are going to get much worse. (laughs) By the time, you know, Jefferson comes around after Washington died, she is uh, pretty bitter. <laughs> oh, oh, my second question. My second question. Oh, yes, yes. Do you think that Martha knew about the second will? Washington wrote a second will months before he died. He'd made the first one with a, a lawyer, and we don't know what it said, but probably did not emancipate enslaved people. Mm-hmm. And he said in this very dramatic way, because you can never make this stuff up. Bring me the will. <laughs> she's left the room because she can't take all the bleeding and the pus and everything else that's happening banish flies bones weren't breaking but I always imagine they were I mean just (laughs) everything gross happened and overwhelming so she leaves the room and then he calls her and she brings the will and he says in this very dramatic way like I'm that one and then burn that one I don't do you think that she knew what was in the new will (sighs) that I don't know I'm just never sure if she knew. I think he gave her the out. He knew that she wouldn't emancipate them early. She would continue to profit off them and she wouldn't really think there was a point because in her mind, they're great to them. And then she quickly realized that this was a really unsafe position for her to be and I completely buy it. And she wrote kind of frightening letters to Bushrod and and other people. She's she's worried legitimately. I always think it's sort of a haunted scene in that last year or so. She's like in the house with some family, but she's sort of, she's got all these memories and Washington is doing God knows what to God knows who. It's a pretty grim end of life that she has. She was really, really mourning, mourning George Washington. She uh, is in a house where she doesn't feel safe and all of her children have died. And I know it's, it's, it's a, it's a, all of it gets really depressing actually after Washington, he really did hold them all together. Yeah. Is there anything that you really wanted to talk about in this letter that we didn't get to in our conversation? It's her best side in a lot of ways. You know, when you get to know Martha, you get to know these two sides. And one is pretty unpleasant and vicious at times, pretty brutal, doesn't understand the humanity, doesn't recognize it in other people. Mm. And then you have this where you really see it. Thank you for picking this letter. I've been meaning to get around to doing this one. And so uh, I was I was glad that this was the one that you suggested. And again, I think there's the there's the duality of the the sort of very conservative, our happiness or misery depends on our dispositions and not upon our circumstances, quote, combined with Martha being stubborn and not leaving the house and complaining to Fanny about uh, New York. That is the the complexity yeah. of this human being. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I was too nervous to invite you until I felt like I had a little bit better grasp on this whole podcast thing. I was waiting and waiting. (laughs) 
the next book is on um, Kennedy. It's on young Kennedy, 1917 to 1956, so right after Profiles and Courage. And it is been so much fun. But I have to tell you, um, at first I was like, oh, video and photographs and, and typewritten drafts. How amazing. There's a lot of handwriting. A lot of handwriting. Oh, no. I, I miss you. <laughs> It is a lot of work reading that handwriting and putting those footnotes in there. <laughs> it's very, I really, I really, I really miss you. I very much appreciate you. I always did, but I really do now. <laughs> oh, thank you again. Thank you. For my listeners, I will link to show notes. I'll link to these letters and to where you can find Alexis's amazing books. And as ever, I am your most obedient and humble servant. Thank you very much. everybody. This is Catherine. I just wanted to check in really quick and say thank you for listening. I appreciate your patience through the hiatus and I am happy to be back. I wanted to let you know that we have really good episodes coming up. I've been recording some through the hiatus. So we've got new scholars coming in and talking with me and fun, interesting letters from fascinating women. Next episode, which will be up in two weeks, is a continuation of my Martha Washington's in-laws series, which I am very excited about. There's probably four of you that are also excited about it, those John Custis fans out there. But just you wait. This is a really interesting one. I wanted to say again, thank you for listening. It's just me making this podcast uh, in my free time. I love doing it, but it is tough to make the time for it sometimes. So if you're interested in supporting the podcast, please check out our Facebook or Twitter or website to find our Ko-Fi links. Uh, we also have a Patreon, which I'm thinking of expanding pretty soon to include some bonus content for everyone. Thank you. If you're not able to support financially, liking the podcast, reviewing the podcast, rating us on iTunes, that's all a huge help. And maybe telling your feminist historian friends. So anyway, I just wanted to check in and say hello again. I missed you. Uh, <laughs> and I am, as ever, your most obedient and humble servant.